There's little doubt that we live in a world wherein are found many mixed up views. And many of you, those views don't really matter here nor there. But what does matter is with regard to the most serious subject of all. That is the eternal matter of the soul. And where much diversity is found is in how man looks upon sin. How serious he may or may not consider it to be. And there are preachers today and there are churches today who make light of sin. And they are aping what the world thinks about it. And men and women, where you get a weak view of sin, usually it follows. There will be a weak view of Christ in that same place. But to remind ourselves of the catechisms, we are left in no doubt what we ought to think about sin. The catechism, it asks the question, what is sin? And it gives that concise definition. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. In other words, sin is not doing what God commands. That's omission. Or else it is doing those things that God forbids. That's the sin of commission. A further question is asked, what does every sin deserve? Every sin. People talk today about the wee white lies or the small sins. Every sin deserves the judgment of God, God's wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come. And if you take time to read the larger catechism, you will come to understand that there are both punishments for sin in this life and in that which is to follow. And so having the right view of sin is of paramount importance. And it's something which the Apostle John is found to speak about in this opening chapter of his epistle. He also, you see, was aware of those in his day who had a wrong view of sin. Now, understand that while I'm preaching with application in the gospel, he's writing to the people of God. He's right into those who already knew God's salvation. But there were those who had a wrong view of sin in John's time. There were those who were Gnostics, who claimed to have no sin. They denied being sinful by nature. And we have the Gnostics today. And then there were those who were the humanists. And we're hearing more about the humanists. And they deny the existence of sin altogether. And they speak of, of it in such terms as a logical illness or some environmental problem. And then you have the perfectionists who will admit that man by nature is depraved, uh, but by grace can completely overcome it and become sinlessly perfect this side of eternity. Men and women, the Scriptures give a very different point of view on all of those. For from the early chapters of Genesis, the book of beginnings, where we're told that God saw the wickedness of man was great in all the earth. You see, there is such a thing as a total depravity of man. 
to the psalmist who bears witness of things that were no different in his day. Psalm 14, for example, let me read you verse 3. And it simply says, They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. To the Savior himself, who was to confirm these things as he spoke of the root of the problem. Matthew chapter 15 verse 19 says, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. And so the Lord is homing in on the problem. The problem is the heart of man. And so, men and women, we ought then to consider what sin really is and its only cure. And I draw your attention particularly to the words of verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's three simple thoughts that even the boys and girls will understand and maybe even remember. The first one is, it's confession. There are really only two ways in which you consider, you can consider your sin. Either you are in denial of it, and John states, however, that if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. We're saying to God, his word isn't truth. Where it states for all of sin that comes short of the glory of God. Or uh, that other verse in Romans 3, there's none righteous, no, not one. And if we deny we have any sin and have not sinned, then we must ask ourselves this very solemn question, why did Christ go to the cross? Why did the Savior experience the outpouring of his God's wrath against him as he suffered, as he bled, as he died, that bitter and agonizing death? Because he was the sinless one. Why did he go to the cross and there's no such thing as sin? Or instead of denying it, the other way is we're brought to that place where the scales are lifted off our eyes by the work of God's Spirit and we begin to see ourselves and we begin to see our sin for what it really is before a holy God. We're brought to that place where Isaiah in the presence, uh, sensing himself in the presence of the triune God, he said, Woe is unto me! For I am undone. And my prayer is that you, dear loved one, if you're not saved, would be brought to that place just now. For thank God if you are, I tell you, there's hope for your soul. There's hope for your soul as you find it in these words of the beloved apostle. What must you do if you recognize your sin and your undone state before God? Then the verse tells you, you must confess it. The defining of the word confess, as we have it in this text, will give us a clear understanding of what it truly means. It's a word made up of two others, together and words. That's the two words. Now, if you bring those two words together, I don't want to confuse you by using that word again, If you bring those two words together, literally, it means to agree with, to say the same thing. 
And so, as God has spoken to us through his prophets, and as God has spoken to us through his Son in these last days, Jesus Christ, and as you have heard God's word preached to you, and your need of repentance toward God and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ, true confession is your response to God's word to your soul. It is agreeing with God what he has revealed about sin to your heart. It is saying the same thing about sin as God has already done so in his word. You see, that's what it means, words and together. True confession means we have the same view about sin as God does. We are in agreement with God. We have sinned by nature. We are sinners by practice. And we have broken His holy law. And He brings it, it brings us to that place where we see ourselves in light of God's holy word. And we stop measuring ourselves against someone else. You ever hear someone else saying to you, Oh, I'm not as bad as such and such down the street. I'm not as bad as her. I'm not as bad as him. It stops us excusing one sin, our sin, and blaming others for the sins that we have committed. But instead, by the work of God, the Holy Spirit, by the way, part of the Spirit's work is to convict of sin. Didn't the Savior teach that in that upper room before he went to the cross? And he was speaking to those 11 disciples of his imminent departure. That's what he's bringing out in John chapter 14. Let your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God. Believe also in me. He goes on to tell them that he's about to depart from them. But he is also telling them of the giving of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of promise. And what's his work? John chapter 16 verse 8. And when he is come, the Holy Spirit is not some feeling. He's not some liquid. He's not some emotion as the charismatic and Pentecostal will be taken up with these days. It's a person when he has come. He's the third person of the Trinity. He will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. He will convict the world of sin. It's part of the Holy Spirit's work to convict. And when the Spirit of God works upon that sinner's heart and he convicts of sin, they start to see their sin will damn them to an everlasting hell and that justly so unless they know God's mercy, unless they know God's forgiveness. There's how you consider sin tonight. Either deny it or you recognize it. And you recognize, I am that sinner. And my sin, nobody else's, has taken me to a lost eternity. You see, this confession of sin must be personal. Because the apostle there, he goes on and he says, if we confess our sin. It's not for you to point the accusing finger at someone else and judge them. When you stand before God on that great and final day, it will be as an individual. You remember David? And David was brought to that point where he was shown his sin with Bathsheba. He tried to cover it over, maybe up to a year. But Nathan had to come. And Nathan, God's servant, pointed out by the means of the little story, the parable, Thou art the man, David. 
that one that took that poor man's lamb. And David had to confess, I have sinned against the Lord. He states in that corresponding Psalm 51, For I acknowledge my transgressions against thee, thee only have I sinned. Luke 15, the prodigal, sitting there with a swine. He comes to himself. And he rehearses in his own heart and mind what he's going to say to his father. And he says, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. You see, it's personal. Job is a seam. You think of Job chapter 7. The word of verse 20, just let me read it to you. And it simply says there, I have sinned. What shall I do unto thee, O thou preserver of men? I wonder, dear listener, tonight, have you ever truly confessed you were a sinner personally and sincerely? For that is what, dear soul, you must do when the reality of your sin is brought before your mind and your heart and before your view. And God has showed you your undone state. But notice to whom confession of sin is to be made to There's no mention in these verses that confession of sins is to be heard by the church or a priest or a prelate. But rather, as we noted with David, with Job, with the prodigal, with the publican in the temple who cried, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Our confession, as the Apostle John speaks in these words, is to be unto God. And there's only one way in which we can come before God. There's only one way of access. And that is by and through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only mediator between God and man. There's only one high priest mentioned in that New Testament church. And that is the Savior. For he is the only one who was to enter in on our behalf as he offered himself as that once for all sacrifice for sin. I read in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 26, For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. God didn't send an angelic being. He gave his only beloved son. He was the great high priest. He's also the sacrifice. There's only one high priest who bears those nail prints in his hands. Those marks of redemption. Who has entered into heaven having obtained and finished the work of redemption for lost mankind. And that person is Christ. Every other priest is a fraud. They don't bear the marks of the nail prints. Oh, my friend, it's Christ and Him alone that you must confess your sin unto. Why? Because Christ alone has the power to forgive sins. And wasn't that proven even by the man who is known as the sick of the palsy? Mark chapter 2. And the Lord is in the house and they bring the man that was sick on the bed. And he says to the man, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. There was those there that day, the Pharisees and the scribes, and they weren't happy. 
And the Lord knew what they were thinking, what they were saying in their heart. They're saying, why did this man speak those blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? My friend, Jesus Christ is God. He's deity along with humanity. And thereby he said to thy, that man, Thy sins be forgiven thee. Verse 10, But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, he saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. Dear people, that man not only was healed of body, but he was healed of soul. He was still lying. You see that? He was still lying when the Lord spoke those words. Verse 12 says, And immediately he rose. What am I saying? I'm saying if you're born again, if you confess your sin unto God, your walk will be different from that time forward. As his was. His walk proved that he had been healed. He had known the power of God and what the Savior had done. Let me ask you tonight, have you taken the place of the penitent sinner before him who is able to forgive you? What must I do with my sin, preacher? You must confess it. Not unto me, not unto an elder or this church, but unto God. For there is the confession. But then you'll notice there's also its forgiveness. Because this verse leads us, takes us to consider what happens when we do confess our sin. John doesn't leave us in any doubt. For he says, Further, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And there's two aspects there that must be taken separately. And the sinner comes in repentance and faith and makes true confession of them, then God, first of all, is said to be faithful in forgiving us our sins. And the term faithful speaks to us that God is true to his character. He's true to his word. His promises are yea and amen. And his word declares in Psalm 130, verse 3, If thou, God, shouldst mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? There's not one of us that could justly stand before God. Why? Because in Adam we all fell and we have all sinned, and God has a purer eyes than to behold iniquity. But you know, we rejoice in the next verse. Because it goes on to say, But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. And verse 7 says, Let Israel hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there's mercy, and with him there's plenteous redemption. Aren't you glad there's mercy with the Lord? Aren't you glad, sinner, that there's forgiveness with God? That is what he has said in his word. That is what John confirms here, that God is faithful to that word. For if you, dear loved one, confess your sin, God is faithful to forgive you of those sins. He's faithful. You know, that was revealed in type. The Old Testament saints were to bring their offering to the high priest. 
that offering, we were looking at the burnt offering on Thursday night past in the prayer meeting, but that offering of whatever it was, usually the lambs, they were slain, the blood was shed, it was presented before the mercy seat, and the people were to know forgiveness. When the high priest came out from the holiest of holies with the sacrifice having been accepted on their behalf, And what was stated and what was said in the book of Psalms and throughout the Old Testament is also found in the New Testament as well and the message of the gospel. Consider the message that the apostles in the early church preached. I think of Paul as he went to that city of Athens. Acts chapter 13. Remember Athens was full of all sorts of gods and idols. Yet it says there that, well, Paul, he just stood up and preached, brought to them the gospel. And it says in verse 38, Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. Through this man. Who's the man? It's Christ. That day there were Gentiles who heard the preaching. And there were Gentiles who believed to the saving of their souls. And those were those who knew the forgiveness of sins. That was also the message that Paul was commissioned to preach as he testifies before King Agrippa. Not only did he preach before the Jew, not only did he preach before the Gentiles, but before kings as God would uh, tell of uh, even in the day of his conversion. Because I read in Acts chapter 26 and the words of verse 18. Let me read verse 17. Delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee. This is God speaking to him. He's rehearsing. He's given a word of testimony. And he says, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. An inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. That's what the Lord commissioned them to preach. Saul, you go forth and you preach forgiveness of sins. Tell me, dear loved one, would you not want to know the blessing of your sins forgiven? That is what you can experience in the gospel now. For God will be faithful to forgive your sin if you make true confession and repentance of them. But as we've read in our text, there's something else here. There's a second aspect or element to it that God does. God is just to forgive us our sin. He's faithful, yes, but he's also just to forgive us our sin. How can God be just and the justifier of them that believe. How can God remain just and forgive the guilty sinner? We're looking a little of that around the table of the Lord this morning. He can do so because on the cross of Calvary, God was to punish sin in the person of His only begotten and beloved Son. For on that cross, Christ was to suffer that shameful death. He was to know rejection from the Father. The cry came out of the darkness, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
He was to know the rebuttal of the crowd. Away with him. Crucify him. He was to know the punishment that our sin deserved. He who knew no sin yet became sin for us. And at Calvary, the wrath of God against my sin was laid on him. And the storm of God's wrath, it broke at the, at the cross. And it broke upon Christ. And he was to bear our sin away in his own body. He bore the load of it. He removed our guilt and he cancelled our debt because of it. He took our punishment as the sinner's substitute. He was to pay the full price of it in the shedding of his own precious blood. And because Christ paid it all, and because he finished the atoning work, then that is why God can justly forgive your sin. When you cry unto him for mercy, and when you seek his forgiveness, because of what the Savior has done on the cross, And you, my friend, can go free when you come by faith to Christ, seeking God's mercy and forgiveness. You see, the good news is that Jesus paid it all. God will not demand the punishment for your sin because Christ has already paid it. Payment God will not twice demand First at my bleeding surety's hand, and then again at mine. The hymn writer got it right. His justice against your sin has been met and been satisfied in the Savior's death on the cross. Dear loved one, you can be saved and you can know the forgiveness of God for your sin. Why? For He is just. To forgive us our sins. I wonder will you seek his forgiveness now? That's what you need tonight. You maybe come into the house of God and you maybe think in your own mind, well I need this or I need that. You need forgiveness of your sin. But you know there's a third thing in our text. The boys and girls have remembered it, I'm sure. There's confession. There's forgiveness here. And the third thing is there's cleansing. There's a wonderful final truth that's found in this verse of Scripture. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. You can take away the our sins there because you'll notice it's in italics in the authorized version. You can read it without that. Our translators have put that in. They give continuity. And then the third thing, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It concerns the cleansing that we can know from our sin. That cleansing is complete. For you'll note the wording of the text, to cleanse us from all, all our unrighteousness. So cleansing from all your past all your present, all your future sins. You just think of that. That's a powerful thought, you know. 
Christ went to the cross to die for his people. He bore our sins and no totality on him. The sins of the past, sins of present, sins of the future, are all laid on him. That doesn't give you your eye a license to go out and sin like we want, or like the old flesh would desire. Because if we're truly born again, if we've truly made confession unto God, seeking his forgiveness, we'll want to please the Lord. But he bore away all our sin. If there was one that he didn't bear away, if there was one he didn't pay for in his own body on the cross, then not one of us would have the assurance of being in heaven one day. For nothing that defileth shall enter in there. All our sin had to be judged in Christ to be saved. Thank God he paid the full price. His death was satisfactory, for up from the grave he arose the third day, according to the Scriptures, having buried our sins forever in the sea of God's forgetfulness. And you can know tonight a complete cleansing from all these wrongs and ills that you have done that no one else knows about but God knows, for his eye is all-seeing. And that's why rascals get up to all they do under the cloak of darkness. Because they think they're not seen. But God sees them. But the verse speaks more than just a complete cleansing. There's a continual cleansing in God's salvation. The tense used speaks about the sinner knowing that once for all forgiveness of sin and that cleansing which is known from day to day. The promise is that God will keep on cleansing us from all unrighteousness. Because the sea of sinner, we do sin every day in word, thought, and deed. We do know what it is to have the battle against the old nature, still within us, still bearing fruit. We therefore need that fresh cleansing. If you turn over to Romans chapter 8, you will see the Apostle Paul was very conscious of this. You just consider the Apostle Paul and the work that he did and the great preacher that he was and the servant of Christ that he was. Yet Romans chapter 7, look at verse 18. He says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will to present is with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. The Apostle Paul knew He knew the ongoing battle of the old nature against the new man. Romans 7, verse 18 and 19. That answers the error of sinless perfection this side of eternity. That is what God promises through the gospel. A once for all cleansing from the guilt of our sin at conversion. And then following that, a daily cleansing which is progressive and an ongoing work until we reach heaven itself and that place where we'll not know even the very presence of sin. There'll be no sin there. I just want to underline this to you. And I can do so by by illustrating it from John chapter 13. You want to come with me to John chapter 13, you'll find that it's nearing the time where the Lord 
was to go to, to the cross. He was ready to cross the Kidron into the Garden of Gethsemane. But he meets with these disciples, his disciples in the upper room. Old Judas is still there, the one that was going to betray him. And we're told that he's in the upper room. It says in the words of verse 4, John 13, He riseth from supper, and laid aside his garments, and took a towel, and girded himself. After that he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Is that not a powerful picture of the humble servant? That's a most lowly task. You can imagine in the eastern setting the feet were dusty of the day, walking the paths. And the Savior, after supper, he draws aside the outer garment he dons the towel and he starts to wash his disciples' feet. I want you to notice that he finishes the work. You know, he just doesn't wipe them. He washes them. He washes and wipes them with that towel. And Peter, he's obviously back in the queue. And he doesn't understand things here. In verse 6, he cometh to Simon Peter. And Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. And he starts to remonstrate. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Lord, I wouldn't have you do that to my feet. Men and women, you see the answer. Jesus answered, verse 8, answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. You see, what he's teaching there is that if, if he wasn't washed, he would have, he's had no fellowship. He's no portion with Christ. And the penny starts to drop with Peter. He washing his disciples' feet. And Peter goes on and says, he said unto the Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. He now goes to the other extreme. He wasn't going to allow the Savior to wash his feet. Now he says, Lord, do it all. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, He that is washed needeth not to save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. You see the teaching? If we're not cleansed, if we're not washed at the point of, by conversion, we're no part of Christ. We're no part of his body. And Peter then went his hands and his head, and the Lord says to him, No, he that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet but it's clean every wet. In other words, you don't need to be converted over again and again and again. That cleansing takes place once and for all at the point of conversion. But what we do need is that everyday cleansing. And he says, that's all you need. The feet wash. Why? Because you walk this world, this world of sin, you're tainted thereby, and you need that cleansing. 
And he says, ye are clean, but not all. You see, Judas had no part with Christ. He was never saved. He never had been cleansed. Even though he was part of that body of men of disciples. And there it is, what is illustrated, what I've been bringing out, even with John in this cleansing that he's speaking about in verse 9. Dear sinner, will you not seek this cleansing from your sin tonight once and for all? Will you not get the old account settled? How can you know this cleansing? It's through Christ's sacrifice and precious blood that he shed. Ephesians 1, 7 says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. My friend, the blood that Christ shed on Calvary's cross has lost none of his ancient power. It's still able to cleanse a vilest sinner. It's still able to cleanse the most righteous sinner clean. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And thank God there's a fountain open tonight in the house of David. For sin and for uncleanness. And you can avail of that cleansing power this evening and be saved. I wonder, weary, troubled, burdened down one. Will you not come now? Will you not plunge neath that fountain and lose all your guilty stains? I know this, that the Savior's blood is able to wash you clean. I know also the truth of the text that we've been looking at tonight. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I wonder, will you come and experience for yourself? The Puritan preacher John Bradford Lived near to the place where criminals were tried behind or tied behind the cart and they were brought to be taken to be hung on the gallows. And those condemned men walked past his house. John Bradford would go out to the door and he would shout, There goes John Bradford, but for the grace of God. That condemned soul is you tonight, sinner. The condemnation of God already is hanging over you. It's already upon you. But God is merciful. And we are still in the day of God's grace. And you've heard words whereby you must be saved. And there is forgiveness with Him. Now will you experience it? And will you rejoice in it this evening ere you leave this place? For his glory's sake. If we confess our sin. If you confess your sin. He is faithful and just. To forgive you your sin. And to cleanse you. From all. Unrighteousness. May you know that cleansing. And may you know what it is. To be every wet clean. For his own sake. The Lord bless his word. Our hearts tonight, for Christ's sake.